You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, guys. Happy Monday. How's your email, Evan? It's great. Are you chastising me for looking at my phone before the intro starts? Don't do, you, do don't whatever you want, man. Don't chastise the I boy. I think it's all right for me to... I was ready. <laughs> it was right... Uh, it came right down to the wire. You're going you're gonna to trip this week, right? I'm going to New Orleans. Which is where our guest lives. That's what I understand. Who is yeah. our guest? Our guest is uh, Nat Rich, and the reason... Nathaniel Rich. Nathaniel Rich. Yeah. Either one. Either one. <laughs> you do- told me before we were taping to say Nathaniel. Yeah, and then I went with Nat. I <laughs> Well, he's, he knows him now. Yeah. yeah we go way back. Um, yeah, he's from New Orleans. We talked a lot about he He fled New York for New Orleans uh, so he could concentrate on his work. And uh, we talked a lot about that and his grisly crime stories and all kinds of things. I really enjoyed it. Right on. Uh, one thing I've been really enjoying is EA World Cup FIFA 14. That, I said those out of order, <laughs> but they all mean something. The game's by EA. It refers to the FIFA World Cup. It's 2014. It's time you got an updated video game. You're still playing that old soccer game? Get out of town with that. Get I love this game. I'm, I'm a, I'm, I play Germany. Max plays Belgium. Evan abstains because he doesn't believe in joy. EA World <laughs> Cup 14. Pick it up for the Xbox or the PS3. Oh, man. Uh, we have another sponsor, you guys. It's a tiny letter. It's a simple elegant way to send an email newsletter it's done by the good people at mailchimp uh do you guys see these tiny letters the tiny letters are everywhere uh, they've it's really taken off i get a bunch of them yeah They're i keep great. signing i keep signing up and i don't even want to unsubscribe they're that good yeah i wish i could unsubscribe from everything except all these tiny letters yeah, you need like a like filter it. in your gmail just uh, accept tiny letter yeah, exactly uh here is max with nathaniel rich Well, hey, Nathaniel Rich. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming. I I should um, say that I am a little disappointed about our venue. Uh, the, f- the first time I emailed you, I was c- I was on my way to New Orleans. Oh, I was coming yeah. to New Orleans, yeah. and uh, I knew that you lived there. I've never met you before, but I knew that you lived there. And I was I had this idea that like we were going to you know sit in whatever like beautiful house you live in where you pay two dollars rent and like both be wearing like undershirts and real sweaty and like drinking some whiskey and talking about stuff and and uh and that is not the case we're just in our same shitty office that we're always in it's okay everything there is so swampy the electronic equipment probably wouldn't work anyway and we'd (laughs) 
be face down in the pool, <laughs> whatever. But how's it going for you in New Orleans? It's great. Uh, I love it there. I've just felt really good since I've moved there. I was ready to leave New York um, about four years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, girlfriend, now wife, uh, got a job offer down there. So we moved down. But I'd always uh, fantasized about living in New Orleans since I visited in, in college a couple times. Yeah, I, uh, I had that uh, I had that same experience. A lot of people. <laughs> it is one of those places, though, that like there there are not a lot of cities in America where you go and you're like, I could live here and, and maybe it would be better. Yeah, it happens a lot with people in New Orleans, especially like people show up for a weekend. The city is so itself that even if you're there for, you know, 36 hours, like you get it. Right. Like you're not, you know, the longer you're there, the more the more you get, the more the deeper you get into it and the different layers you start to see, but it's just so internally consistent and like self-referential that you've just entered this universe and it's you, you know what it is. All of the city's virtues come from this aspect and all of its failings. Like, it doesn't realize it's in, uh, you know, there's, like, the U.S. Constitution, for instance. Like, if you go to courts in New Orleans, this is where my wife works, they don't quite understand that there's, uh, you know, uh, a system of, of jurisprudence outside of the crooked way that the, the local courts operate. And, and you, have, you know, there's this phenomenon there. I guess you have this in a bunch of small cities, but it's really pronounced in New Orleans um, where you have like these local celebrities, particularly in music. So people who are just like super famous within the city, um, but have zero aspiration to to make it in New York, for instance, or to go to LA. And I mean, the best example is this guy, Kermit Ruffins, who's, I guess he's now a little more famous nationally because he's on Treme a lot. And, um, you know, people who know jazz will know him, but he's, he's this trumpet player. He's probably the most the biggest musician in New Orleans. He has a couple of weekly gigs and um, where he makes barbecue for everybody and makes be, you know red beans and rice and stuff for everyone in the audience and totally beloved. And I went one time on a trip to New York um, and actually coming back from New York one, one time and he was on my, my JetBlue flight. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's Kermit Ruffins, like cool. But he gets on the plane and he's sitting in like aisle 28 in the middle seat. I was like, oh, like that's this. This tells you what New Orleans is about, and he didn't give a shit, you know. Right. But, but as as like a uh, New York City kid, were you like, I want more for you? Yeah, I was a little disappointed. I felt kind of bad, but yeah. I shouldn't feel bad. It's condescending even to feel bad because he's he's this huge star, and he he doesn't give a shit. And you know, he if he wanted to make it in New York, he could, but he doesn't want to. He, you know, he's part of this really strong community locally, and and there's something really magical about that, and. I I aspire to that way of thinking, but I don't think as growing up in New York, it's hard for me to to get there. Yeah, I mean, like, have you have you like adopted the place as your own? Like, do you think you're uh, you're on your way to getting there? I don't know. It's 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 this thing when that happens when you go to New Orleans, where when you move there, at least especially in the last few years, where a lot of transplants have moved down, um, and a lot from New York. At least there's a perception that a lot of New Yorkers have moved down. Um, it's not actually accurate, but. There's a perception in New Orleans or a perception, perception in, New in New Orleans that's being taken over by New Yorkers and, and Angelinos. So there's these insane tax credits to for Hollywood, as right. there are in a lot of places. But in, New or- in Louisiana, it's so corrupt that obviously it's way beyond what's necessary. I'm sure the state's losing money and there's some backroom deals. But so you have constantly L.A. people coming in, um, actors and also lots of productions are constantly shooting in town. So between that and the sense of... It's being colonized by by New Yorkers, I think, because of 
series of you know increasingly fawning pieces in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, New York Magazine about New Orleans. It's, it's some this conception of New Orleans is some kind of like New Brooklyn or something, which is a really poisonous idea for everybody involved. Um, but yeah, so that, there's the sense that that it's just being taken over. Rents and the most significant thing is rents have gone up, skyrocketed in the last couple of years, and. Um, but so it's a loaded. Whenever I'm asked like, "Where are you from?" It's sort of a loaded yeah. question, and my answer is loaded also when I say New York. Because I, I, but then I, you know, I, I always point out. Do you do out, the preface now? Like I, I say, I've been there for four years. Oh, I've been here for four years. Right. Well, the best example. This is the best example. And I'm rambling. I apologize, but um, I just bought a house in New Orleans, and I went to City Hall to the assessor's office to get a kind of tax tax documents for property tax. And I show up, and the woman says, "Where are you from?" Uh, I said, "New York originally, but I've been here for four years. Like, I'm not just moving to buy this house." And she's like, "Uh huh, you're a New Yorker." And I was like, <laughs> "Well, um, okay, you know." But she's holding in her hand my bill of my my deed, property, you know, bill of sale for the property, my Louisiana driver's license, and my property tax record. So it's like, how much? More can I prove that I'm a resident of right, the state of Louisiana? You have all of the legitimate paperwork. She's in her in her fingers, like she <laughs> has all of this, and she's like, and, and she said, "Uh, uh-uh, you're a New Yorker." And then she looked down, and I was sheepishly realized that I was wearing a New York Knicks <laughs> T-shirt, Jeremy Lin vintage, and in in big orange letters across my chest, New York. She goes, "Uh, huh, yeah." yeah. Yeah, you were sell also that like somewhere a, else, eating a bagel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How's it been for your writing living down there? It's been great. Um, it's just been really liberating for me to be outside of New York. It's just I love New York, but it's I'm just really busy when I'm here. I have a lot of friends, and my family is here. And um, maybe we should go just go back a little bit because I feel like uh, you know you didn't just move there, but you'd sort of left something. I mean, you'd been here since you were a kid, but had also been in like you've been you've been doing the thing. You'd been in the New York City magazine world. Yeah, I mean, I was I was uh, working for five years at the Paris Review. Um, as a fiction editor, and uh, before that, I'd lived in San Francisco for a couple of years. But and then before that, I worked at the New York Review uh, right out of college. And but I, I felt I felt just kind of um, worn out by the end of that. I was working on a new novel, novels about New York. I wanted some distance, um, and I just felt like I would be more productive elsewhere. And New York's expensive, so I, yeah. I felt like I would be able to have a little more time and freedom. When you were, when you were working those jobs, was it hard to find time to write? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was working as a full-time job as an editor, especially at the Paris Review as an editor, and um, I would be writing on the weekends and at night, but it's it's tricky to, to do a, you were, to get a lot done. And you were also, done. what, like, you know, early 20s? Um, I was there from uh, 25 to 30, about. Yeah, it's like, I, I mean, at least for me, that was like a tough time to be diligent. Yeah, oh, yeah. And I was single for a big part of that. There's a lot of distraction, you know. There's a lot of, a lot of different priorities, uh, and and I felt like, um, the, but the biggest issue for me really, and this, I, I struggle to figure out the way to articulate this without it sounding kind of cheesy or like a cliche, but I felt like I knew so many people who were writers. I knew so many people in publishing, and everybody. Like in any community, in any place, everyone's talking about the same things. Everyone's preoccupied with the same things. And I felt like I, it was hard for me to think originally almost. Like I wasn't – or I was I was anxious that maybe I was being sort of um, sucked up by that, whatever that is. And, 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 I, and I wanted to, you know, work on this, this novel that was pretty 
strange and I, and I wanted it to be strange and I wanted it to be different and I felt like I had to just be outside of that whole community a little bit and I don't know maybe that's bullshit but I sort of I, not know. only do I not like think it's bullshit I think it's uh, a sentiment that's shared by many people who are caught up in that thing include like um, you know like I go to some of those parties and I have the same thought as like uh, there's a this I have a like a very close friend of mine is moving to Portland tomorrow Oregon yeah. yeah. I'm going to go see him after this. And uh, like his last night in New York, has lived there for 10 years. Wow. And he's so confident about that move. He's actually not in the like journalism world, but he's so, he's like so sure of the move. He's so like hyped about it, you know? And there's something totally appealing about that. Like it's, uh, it's pretty intoxicating. Oh yeah. It's really intoxicating and it's a little scary. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was scared at first. It's a big plunge. Um, I was scared also to leave the editorial job. Um, I mean, I basically left them almost. I'm, I, there was about a six month gap, but I knew I, I already knew I was le- moving to New Orleans. Yeah. When I left the editorial job, scary. But I mean, were you? Did you have that fantasy about it too? Because like, w- whenever I think about it, uh, I don't think I'm like being particularly realistic about what it would be like to move. Look, there's with a lot of people, there's a lot of practical stuff that's very difficult. Um, you know, for instance, if you're working as an editor, you can't leave New York. It's you know there's maybe a couple job, good editorial jobs in other places. You might go work for Outside Magazine or Wired or something, but no, you have to be here if you work so as an agent. Were you ever on the fence about whether you were going to be an editor or be a writer? No, I wasn't on the fence about that. I just I just was anxious about um, leaving the security of of a job. I mean, even when I took the Paris Review job when I was 25, I felt real. I mean, I felt really fortunate uh, to get the job, and I also felt like it was the only job that uh, editorial job that I that I, I I really wanted because it it there's this long history at the Paris Review of editors writing and especially the novelists um, Jonathan D Mona Simpson sort of the recent recent uh, generation um, and you know it's a quarterly it's we worked you know it was a full-time job <laughs> but it's not like working at, at Condé Nast magazine yeah. Or a weekly, and it was the only one that would have worked. Yeah, and I'm and and it's and I get to work with a lot. I got to work with a lot of short story writers and fiction writers, and also nonfiction, and um, so it felt a little more natural. Yeah. And 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 you know, George Plimpton wrote all his books while he was running the whole thing, so um, that seemed really right. Uh, and I knew that I wasn't going to work at another editorial job after I left that magazine. That makes sense. Yeah. And so so. New Orleans had this appeal because you could sort of do what you wanted to do uh, for a little bit cheaper and without some distractions. Yeah, and I was sort of in love with the city and 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 kind of had this fantasy of living in this 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 oddball place uh, that was yeah at a remove and I'm drawn to places that are that feel like they're their own worlds. Yeah, um, I felt that way about San Francisco. I don't really feel it about San Francisco anymore, or at least the world that it it is is not the world that it, I was attracted to when I moved there and. 2004 but New Orleans is another example how yeah I mean how has it impacted your writing that's a good question I don't know I mean I'm it's hard to tell yeah I mean when you say you're like thinking differently or better what I think there's fewer distractions I mean it's just it's It's just just a pretty yeah I mean it's a pretty mundane thing it's just like I know fewer people I have a lot less to do I'm just like sweating it out in my hot um, <laughs> a little office and uh, have more time to read have more time to write it's a boring answer it's just like I have more hours yeah and that's it it sounds kind of appealing dude yeah I mean I feel a bit like an old man when I come back to New York I get really like giddy and excited to see people but also really anxious yeah yeah I prematurely tried to like aged myself somehow 
look, it's not it's not any like new advice, but it's if if you're a writer, especially if you want to, especially if you're doing long form journalism, frankly, like it's to get out of New York is just you realize how much else there is out there to write about, um, and the opportunities that it presents you with are you just can't get in New York. Um, well, let's talk about some of the journalism, man. Let's talk about some of your stories. Um, I've just, uh, it, this, sometimes we do these and there's like so many I want to talk about that I'm worried we're not going to get to all of them, but it, it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, the stuff about like New Orleans changing the way you look at things or, or, uh, what kind of stories you could do. Cause I feel like there's like this kind of consistent theme through a lot of your like magazine work, which is, uh, you're kind of writing about like, um, super crazy things. Yeah, that's one way to put it. <laughs> it is the uh, opposite of Monday. Like everything is uh, sort of at at uh, at an extreme. And I guess well, one story that probably is born out of being in New Orleans was the diver one. Yeah, about um, deep sea divers. Um, I guess I. I mean, the way I see it, I'm drawn to to obsession. So stories about obsession, about obsessives. I mean, I think I'm an obsessive in in, in a way. I think probably most writers are to some extent. Um, it's an obsessive act to sit at a desk by yourself. Yeah, deep sea diving is one of those. I mean, that's part of this sort of idea of stories I I wanted to write about. Uh, That's the only one that exists currently, but about people who do jobs that in which they risk their life and and people who don't have to do those jobs. I'm not talking about like a poor kid who joins the army because it's... um, the only way to get out of their town or to go to college or something and then risk his life in, in Afghanistan. But people who have options um, but choose to do something that could kill them. I mean, that job is – we were talking about like uh, commercially. C- commercial divers, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like people commercial divers. working for like Shell Oil in the Gulf and whatever. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh, it's incredible. Yeah, no, that actually did – yeah, my neighbor at the time was a Shell – worked for Shell or Chevron – and his job was a troubleshooter on the oil rigs, offshore rigs. So if something went wrong, he'd go out and fix it. And he and, and I would ask him all these questions about it because it's fascinating. I don't know anything. It might about not be it. life or death, but that sounds like about as like high stakes a job. As you Pretty can do. high. It's like, it's like to prevent like a BP disaster, basically. Right, and you're and you are only uh, of service when things are fucked. Right. And the guy is just this classic dude who drinks like a fifth of whiskey. When you hang out with him, he brings his own whiskey. He brings it's a Crown Royal. He brings his own Crown Royal. Drinks a whole fifth by himself, and is just beaming air to ear. He's a real, he's a dude from uh, northern Louisiana, and he's like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I was like, the guys who who are out there for weeks, months at a time, like that's just crazy. He's like, yeah, yeah, they're all crazy, but the guys that we think are crazy are the divers, <laughs> right? And they don't really fraternize with the rest of us, and they're in their pod or they keep to themselves, and they're lunatics. Yeah, that that story had this element, man. Like a, the first third of it you're eating it or at least i was reading it, i was like ah, this is so crazy and then at some point it gets like real terrifying yeah it's really it's just, scary how did you uh i mean how'd you go find them if they don't talk to your to your guy i talked to a few people who were retired divers people who worked in the industry but were no longer um actually diving um you know a guy who ran the kind of like a consortium of divers and uh told me all these great stories I, there's a couple books about it um but no it wasn't a very like wasn't like a great feat of of, of reporting i mean i was based the, it's a funny piece and it's like the new york review is probably one of the few places that would run a piece like that because it's just essentially the piece is this is what this job is yeah 
since you know, there's no news item. There's no uh, nothing really. There's very little that's not in the public domain somewhere. Um, but it's just about you know pointing out how fucking crazy this work is, and and we don't, no one ever talks about it. But this is going on all the time. This is these are the people that are responsible for us having electricity. Yeah, it felt like um, there's like a uh, like small genre of air traffic controller stories, huh? Which is like kind of the same in the same vein, like. There's no particular hook here. Just like uh, we're gonna sit with these people for a little while. Yeah. This is a fucking crazy way to spend. It's like, like John McPhee five. stuff, which is what I love, and and that's sort of the model. Hey, it's Max. I'm gonna pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's EA Sports FIFA World Cup. You have heard me mention this game before. Aaron's talking about it in the intro. We have been playing it nonstop. Uh, we have ten final games a final set of 10 to give away to you i've gotten tons and tons of emails the last couple of weeks uh, from people hoping to get a free game these are the last 10 if you are listening to this right now send an email editors at longform.org put ea sports fifa world cup in the subject line if you are one of the first 10 i will put a game in an envelope i will take that envelope to the post office i will put it in the mail it'll show up on your door and you'll be able to play as much of this game as we've been uh, all during the World Cup, you're going to watch a game and you can like uh, replay it or whatever. Whenever you need your soccer fix, uh, whenever you need to kill some time, whenever you need to procrastinate, EA Sports FIFA World Cup, it has been solving all of those problems for us. We really do love this thing and play it all the time. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. And uh, let's get back to Nat. Okay, so here's a question about that story, maybe a larger question, right? It's like, that is a world that uh, you actually have no idea about, and still don't really have any idea about. Who, who the fuck? Yeah, I have no idea. I have, no. I have to read the piece again. <laughs> no, I mean I now know a little bit, but no, it's, but it no like, it's not. A, and 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 I and I'm not the type of reporter who would do that. By the way, yeah, this was not. There's no opportunity for like the uh, Plimpton stunt move here. I mean, if there was, I would not do it. <laughs> and not in a million years. <laughs> They're risking their life. That's the whole thing. I mean, that's what's so crazy to me. They're like right. risking their life to. Do, I I have a job. Where I do not risk my life. To, I mean, there are some great journalists that do this, and it's a whole type of journalism. And I'm friends with a few who've actually died, in the, you know, and and that's very uh, foreign to my conception of anything of what I do. And and, and so I have, I have huge admiration for for anybody who puts themselves in danger for work. Um, and that's but that's that fascination and curiosity and and sort of confusion and and. Uh, terror that I feel even comprehending that <clears throat> as an idea uh, is what drew me to write this piece. Yeah. And like when you get closer to it, like, does it satisfy the curiosity? I guess what I'm saying is like my experience of reading that story was like, as I got closer to it, I got more freaked out and like wanted to go away from it. Yeah. It, I guess I went out the other side. Yeah. <laughs> you I, mean, got there? I came, th- I went through and got out the other side. I mean, it's a lot like you know, my last novel, uh, I was getting smart about this guy who's obsessed with worst case scenarios. So I just had had years of, of having this experience through writing is basically summoning all the most terrifying possible things that could happen to all of us and, um, exploring, exploring like the anxiety as extremely as I could. And that process actually had a kind of, um, that, that made me feel, it, it, it was an exercising effect. I started to realize that it's not, you can't really worry about any of these things because it's all, these vast catastrophes are out of your control. Or And um, I mean, I feel like certainly in the novel, like there's this element of uh, 
worrying about that stuff is a way to avoid worrying about things that you yeah. actually have some control that's sort over. Of what, that's like the moral. Yeah, it's like you can obsess about this stuff, but at the end of the day, um, you're only going to ruin your life because you're going to neglect the things that you can control and 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 how a lot of the you know crises, personal crises that we experience are are higher stakes because they involve people that we're intimate with. Um, but we have control over these as opposed to, you know, Yellowstone volcano or something like that. And once you've figured out like that, uh, once you've, you've arrived at that place of extreme wisdom, what do you do next? What do you, like, what? <laughs> then you, then you, then you learn about divers and you're like, Oh shit. <laughs> or you learn about the next thing, you know, it's always, it's peaks and troughs, but, but yeah, I find writing about this stuff is a way of, of, of coming to peace with a lot of, of yeah. Things. A lot of these conversations, what emerges is that people are sort of writing in, about themselves and various ways all yeah. the time all writing is, so it's is like uh, we did i did one of these with gay talese and like uh at some point it emerged that he had like written most of his articles about like italian men between like 35 and 50 uh-huh <laughs> like like laying it on pretty thick actually that's that was the real inspiration uh for the diving piece was gay talese's book the bridge about the, the, the verrazano verrazano and those stories about the native american bridge workers who would go up and onto the, uh, you know, without any safety nets or any tethers or cords or whatever, and would just um, be up thousands of feet in the sky. And he has, a, there's, I think there's something in that, that book where he has a little moment where he says, like, how, how could they, do, you know, how could they yeah. do this? And that really triggered for me, or he talked about how interesting that, that is and how people don't tell those stories about the, these acts of heroism that happen all around us that we sort of... Um, don't pay attention to. And I think that was actually the original inspiration for doing a series of pieces about jobs like that. Are there other jobs you're looking to like explore? Uh, the next one I'm doing is um, shrimping, fishing. Fish, nice. The most dangerous job is is uh, being a f- commercial fisherman. Right, and then logging. Yeah, I think that's right. You should go do logging. Logging right? will be next, yeah. yeah. Just your series on... Commercial fishing and then logging, yeah. I, Are you going to go fi- out in a boat? Well, with, I could, and I think I'm not. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I think... I don't think I need to because I have spoken so much with these guys and really what it is is just sitting on the boat for days. And maybe dying. And maybe dying. Maybe getting stuck in the wench. It's like a mangler. It just tears you apart. It's a device designed to tear you apart. Yeah. It's like a man-eating machine. And and these guys go on these boats for days without sleeping because they have to maximize how much fish they can catch. That but doesn't I hold any appeal to you. Do that? No, I don't think. <laughs> I think I have enough. I have enough for my piece. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should also just like go find um, like the. You could do a series on like the safest jobs. Yeah, L- lower just, stakes. Yeah, just, just like yeah. yeah, desk job, safest, rental, rental car agent. Yeah, although if you have to drive, though, yeah, what is the safest possible job you can have? Probably being a writer who never leaves his house. <laughs> I think I found it actually. Just waking up and then going into Probably a different room. Probably a writer who has an office in his house and he never leaves it. <laughs> Doesn't even have to get dressed. <laughs> All right. So, what's the appeal of the uh, what's the appeal of, like the Rolling Stone stuff? You do those crime stories, murder stories. Where, where does that fit in? Do you all, like? I guess that I don't know. I'm, I'm really interested in noir and and yeah, it's high stakes stories. Yeah. It's it's um, wrote a piece about Amanda Knox. I mean, that's 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 a piece about obsession and the prosecutor becoming obsessed with Knox and with his crazy devil fantasy, devil worship fantasy, um, and everybody being convinced by it and it's sort of really like the whole world becoming obsessed with this case. And 
Um, but yeah, I mean, high stakes stories, crazy stories. Uh, yeah, I read this piece about Tyler Hadley, yeah, the seventeen year old who killed his parents. Um, you, I assume like you you read about that somewhere. Yeah, I think my editor s- sent it to me and it was like, "Do you want to do this?" And I said, "Sure." And then I think they were alarmed at how fucked up it was when I turned in the story because it's they thought the story about the kid who murdered his parents and then threw exactly, a party yeah, was exactly be yeah exactly um but that's a really disturbed crazy story and uh but at its heart i there's something very sort of blackly comical about it i'm glad you said that I and mean, this is the thing that i want to talk to you about it's like i'm that comes through in your in these stories and a lot of this stuff is like i i i understand that like super crazy is not the most eloquent way of putting it but there, there is this element in those stories where you're like, this is fucking crazy. Yeah. Get ready for this bullshit. Well, it's just, those are good stories. Like, who doesn't want to hear a story that's, like, fucking crazy? And, yeah. Well, there was, an, like, um during that whole, like, Dr. V thing with Grantland, there was this sort of conversation that happened around that, which was about, like, sometimes people in this world forget that it's real people. Right. And I guess that's the tension I'm interested in is, like, they're crazy stories they're great stories but like you know there's also whatever he is 18 year old kid sitting in jail in port st Lucie, like trying to like uh figure out how to talk to his brother yeah it's very upsetting and disturbed and uh on the other hand you have like the best party ever it's like the, the ultimate open house party ever because the parents are not not only not there they are there they're dead um and then this creepy thing of that i got from reporting the piece that I don't. No one else has reported, but came across pretty clearly, which is that enough of the other kids in the party knew that some shit had gone down. Yeah. I think they had an idea, and nobody will admit that explicitly. That is a grisly story. The grisliest detail in that story is the kid washing off the blood off the ping pong ball, know, so he can go so back to gnarly. playing beer pong. The whole place smells like smells like death, and there's it's dirty. The kid had never had a party before in his life, and then you know, at the end of the party, everyone goes home, and he's like, "Party's continuing tomorrow." Like, come back four thirty a.m. the night of, um, right before he got arrested. Um, so that that kind of dark darkness. I mean, it's almost like a Hitchcock premise or something. Um, but of course, yes, it, these are real people. This is a deeply disturbed kid. He obviously, has some psych- psychological problems, psychiatric problems. Maybe he was fucked up by his meds. He was on all kinds of weird, you know, antidepressants and. And and it's about as uncomfortable as I get as a reporter, um, yeah. because I had to go talk, try to talk to, um, for instance, the parents of his best friend who did not want to talk to me. I had to talk to Michael Mandel, the, the best friend. I tried to talk to Tyler Hadley's brother. I got on the phone with him. I really don't, uh, you know, those are conversations that I don't want to have. Yeah, I don't want to call these people. I don't want to bother them. I'm just writing a stupid Rolling Stone piece. Like Ryan Hadley's had his whole family taken from him i don't enjoy that but i also feel a responsibility to do it sure to the piece i mean how do you approach those conversations how do you how do you call up his brother i got the phone number from police files because they didn't redact anything um and that's how i got all this information um and i just called him and i said listen i'm really sorry i'm calling but i i have i'm writing a piece for one stone and i feel bad to I know you're going through a really difficult time, but I, I I had to make an effort to see if you might be willing to come talk to me for the piece. And he was really nice. He's like, um, I can't. I understand, but I can't talk to you. It's fine. Yeah. It's not my comfort zone. It's not the kind of writer I am. I'm not 
um, I force myself to do that kind of thing. Does it get more comfortable? No, I, I find it really difficult to approach strangers and ask and talk to them. I mean, I do it, and I and and I get good stuff when I I do it. And I'm not like a journalist in my bones, you know. It doesn't um, that doesn't come naturally. I really have to force it. Well, then, why, like, why do you do it? What's appealing about journalism? I mean, you could actually just wake up every morning and go into an office and write novels, right? Well, I think I would go a little crazy. And you know, the truth is, a lot of the writers that I really admire the most are writers who wrote novels but also wrote essays and criticism and and did uh, reporting journalism and I, I i aspire to be that kind of writer i feel like if you're a um like a good writer you should be able to do these different things and you sh- these arbitrary um you know dividing lines that that we call genre or form or whatever um shouldn't you know be restraints and that's part of it the other part of it is i think if I just sat in my room all day writing fiction, I would go a little crazy. Yeah. And I, I think I would also wouldn't get a lot of, um, when I do reporting, when I do trips like that, it's ref- it's like refreshing. It helps. It's, it's the same thing of sort of um, resetting my thoughts. It, it allows me to have experiences and it, I think it really helps the fiction. I think the fiction is like uh, replenished by doing the reporting. I mean, that's sort of a cheesy way to put it, but they're complementary, and I think, and and certainly, the fiction helps me write the things I, I think about the narrative, pace, structure, uh, character. The fiction helps with the nonfiction too, so it's it's complementary, and I think it's it's important for me to break it up. But it's a, it's yeah, so it's a source of tension for me balancing between different projects because I have to change gears and I have to. Do you think of one of them as as more valuable than the other? I don't think one is more valuable necessarily. I mean, I think I'm... Um, I mean, more to you. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I'm primarily devoted to the fiction, but I feel like it, it. I need to get out in the world in order to be a good fiction writer. Um, I think, you know, the problem with so much fiction, especially I feel like contemporary fiction, is it's it's clearly written by writers who aren't doing anything. They're just sitting with their books and their thoughts and they you can still write a nice novel that way but there's a kind of arid quality to it that can be claustrophobic and i i i just you know i can't talk about other writers really but in my own personal experience i find when i'm out in the world doing other things and coming back i have more ideas sort of fresher um and it's like you know it takes me a really long time to write a novel it takes me 5 or 6 years and it's nice to have take a couple weeks to write a story and have it come out and have the gratification right. involved that, with that. Get that like, uh, little endorphin hit. Yeah, and have the, and have the money. You know? yeah. and it's like it's, it's all... So these are all factors. Um, and uh, I, sort of, I sort of see it like I do three things, like criticism, uh, novel, fiction, and uh, these sort of reported pieces, nonfiction. And they all, they help one, they inform one another, they help one another. The challenge for me is just to figure out how to do, about, you know, um, a lot of the time. Are you like a, like a deeply organized guy? Not really. Not, no. I mean, but that's part of moving to New Orleans is like, I don't have, there's less to organize. Right. Just, just sitting there with my wife <laughs> <laughs> in the swamp. <laughs> Wait, if you're working on a Rolling Stone story, are you like going home at the end of the day and trying to work on the novel too if I'm reporting like, a story yeah, yeah like if I'm reporting Lucy Fernandez I'm not doing anything else but 
if I have, uh, if it's the next week and the piece isn't due for three weeks, then I might be working on a novel for a week and then spend the next week doing the Rolling Stone. The problem is like the deadlines always take priority over novel uh, because you have to finish work <laughs> right. by the deadline. Um, <clears throat> there's no deadline with the novel. So that's been it that's would, been would tricky would your book editor say there's no deadline for the novel well th- where i am in the cycle there's no deadline i mean yeah at different points um in the editorial process yeah you get deadlines um let's talk a little bit about the new york times magazine stuff okay if you're kind of writing about uh obsessives in a sort of different way also super high stakes but it's like uh is this like the future of the world slash uh-huh. humanity uh it's mostly people with very large ideas who are trying to put very large ideas into action. Is that about right? Yeah, that is. I mean, I don't I think I think that's that's accurate, but I don't I don't think of them in advance as all being part of the same thing necessarily. And I've done different stuff. Like I've written for them, I've written pieces about obsessive like food bloggers and about, you know, train travelers. But then also about science guys. Yeah. Was the train story your idea? Yeah. I took a train for it was right after Sandy. Um, days after Sandy, from uh, D.C. down to New Orleans. I really like taking trains. And uh, New Orleans is a terminus of three major lines, Chicago to New Orleans, L.A. to New Orleans, and um, New York. And so it's convenient, actually. And, and I just love the rhythm of, of a train. And I, I took this, this train ride, and it was like 26 hours. And I was sitting next to this guy, um, from I forget what it was called, small city in in, in New Jersey. Had never left New Jersey. Um, I asked him what he did. Uh, it becomes more awkward not to talk to somebody, you know, if yeah. you're sitting next to him for 26 hours than to talk. To, uh, <laughs> unlike an airplane, where it's like more awkward to talk to somebody. Here, it's like more awkward not. So we start talking. He never left New Jersey before. Asked him what he did. He, he looked at me, gave me sort of a sideways look. He's like, "I'm a hustler." <laughs> like, okay, no more questions about profession. Um, and you know we were passing through DC. He was like, ask. I was. He asked me to point out like the. Um, I guess it was like the Capitol or the you know, Lincoln Monument or something like that. And uh, we're going along, and, and I was like, well, why are you leaving New Jersey for the first time? And he said, well, I'm in a bad situation there. Like, my girl, I'm dating for 14 years. They have a. She has a kid. It's not his kid, but he's like a. Uh, I guess it's a daughter to him and. It's like, yeah, things have been a little rocky lately, and she um, wants me to have a threesome with her best friend. I was like, whoa, okay. And he's like, yeah. He's like, man, I don't. I think it, she's setting me up. And he's like, but she sent me these pictures, and he shows me on his phone these pictures of the best friend posing for him, and he's like, you know, basically in her underwear. Um, and, and I was like, dude, that's there's worse things that could happen to you. I mean, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, no, but man, I got, I had to get out of there. The shit was bad. I think she was gonna. If I did it, I would be. You know, she would. She was. She would know that I was a cheater or something. And like, okay. So he's going to Mississippi. I'm like, who are you going to see? He's like, my his old best friend, um, a white guy, and his girlfriend uh, settled somewhere in Mississippi. And as we're on the train together, he gets a text from his friend, his buddy, and he's really concerned about Mississippi. He doesn't know what it's like. You know. Uh, he's only seen Mississippi burning, I think. That's his only conception of Mississippi. And I said, yeah, it's kind of like that, basically. But I told him. He goes, he shows me this text, and he's like, oh, shit. This is bad. Got a text from his friend. I said, what did it say? He says, he wants his girlfriend. Uh, he wants me to have a threesome with him and his girlfriend. <laughs> and he's like, she's never been with a black guy before. 
I was like, dude. So he's basically, and he's like, I was like, that's that's okay too. Like maybe that'd be funny. He's like, no, man, it's a fucking setup, you know. <laughs> and and so he was like. Uh, in this like liminal space of the Amtrak car, right. this twenty-six hour ride, stuck between two threesomes, he couldn't get away. It seems like that guy is is headed for a threesome one way or the other. I mean, he other. can't he can't escape them. They're just <laughs> coming at him right and left. Yeah, I mean, we texted actually after he got there, and he was like, "Mississippi's cool, but it's pretty weird. You know, it's pretty weird." And I might go back to New Jersey, but <laughs> whatever. And and, uh, and I met a bunch of other people. There was a guy who was a re- refugee from Sandy. His whole house had. had flooded and so on and I was like this is really interesting like there's something going on here and I wanted to write about that and and so I pitched it as a piece and then I I had this other train ride where a lot of interesting stuff happened that I was then reporting on forcing myself to actually talk to people right is it basically your assumption that just if you take any train ride of that length you're going to find some interesting yeah it always happens there's always going to be a story for why you're on a train for 46 hours willingly do you don't know whether that guy had the three similar. I, I just can't think I about mean, anything I could, else right now. Yeah, Robert. I lost his number, unfortunately. I mean, I have a feeling it's not uncommon to like trade phone numbers and stuff with these guys. And I sometimes get a call. Um, I got a call from a guy in the piece who uh, is a, a vet who was worried about having his like uh, his legs removed. Uh, he was having nerve issues, and um, yeah, he just like calls me out of the blue sometimes. Um, I can't remember what it was. 2010, I think. You wrote you wrote this story about like uh, how cell phones are going to kill us all. They might kill us all. They might. They might be okay. <laughs> Where did There's you... Low, low percentage chance that they'll kill us all, but killing us all is pretty bad, so we have to consider it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, even maybe less than 1%, but... It's still like bad. Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine. You know, we have to consider that the worst, if the worst case scenario will happen in 1% of the time. Sure. Odds are on the board. Yeah. Does that... Uh, has that stuck with you? I mean, whatever. I talk on the cell phone. I put it pressed next to my brain all the time, but I do have headphones that I use when I can. Like and, most most of the time. Yeah, and I don't put it next to my balls. <laughs> Those are the things I try not to do. do um, you, are you like a lap, laptop nowhere near the balls? Yeah, nowhere near the balls. Yeah. No, I really, I get I get freaked out when my wife puts the laptop on her over, like directly on her ovaries. <laughs> I'm not into that. And I don't, definitely don't sit with the laptop on, on my lap. Um and I try not to sleep next to my head next to the cell phone. Yeah, that seems, I mean, that seems healthy in like a variety of ways. Yeah, just definitely. I feel like uh, no cell phones in the bedroom is pretty, like, pretty good policy. It's a battle that we fight, we fight with yeah. ourselves. Yeah, it's a battle that I actually just fight with my wife. Good. I mean, there's, it's just, I mean, what I discovered in that piece is there are so many studies that show a correlation between low-level electromagnetic field radiation, stuff that you get off of a cell phone or a laptop, um, a little more, I think, with a cell phone, and cancer, and also other other problems, you know, and cognitive also we have problems. no fucking idea, and we have no idea. Well, yeah, and and none of the studies have really been going on for long enough to be decisive in any way. Now, there's more studies that show there's no problem, but a majority of those studies are backed by telecom industry sources, so no one really fucking knows, and. Right. Obviously, the financial interests are such that no one's going to know for a long time. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, but what interested me about that piece was was really hanging out with these people who have devoted their lives yeah. to obsessing about it. It's funny, too, because I guess that, that that is like apocalyptic in a slightly different way. But the moral is like, um, uh, maybe you should worry about it. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, 
it's like maybe you should worry about it but maybe we have so much other shit to worry about that like fuck it if we all have brain cancer at least we'll all go out together yeah but it's it's yeah it's pretty grim um but it's just something it's just one of those things in modern life that we don't question but like maybe in 50 years we'll all be shocked that right. we do this just look back and just like all these pictures of people walking through like walking down like second avenue or whatever with just like their head. like cancer bombs yeah. by their head yeah no, it freaks me out i don't go through the radiation machines in the airports oh really you ask for the pat down yeah every time i've actually never gone through it really it's the same issue same kind of radiation low level emf i mean they now have different they're different types of machines but we don't need to go into it but they, <laughs> I, I just think it's i just would rather avoid it now you could argue quite persuasively that taking an airplane you get like nth degree more radiation because you get cosmic radiation you're in an airplane and that dwarfs whatever you'd get by going through the little machine but you just choose not to think can, about that you can avoid well you can take trains but you can also avoid is that why you take trains that's part of it not really and that's one of one of a number of reasons but i mean i fly all the time but uh yeah i mean and then people say well well, if that was the case, then would an airline pilots have a higher rate of cancer and stewardesses? And the answer is, they do. Well, there you go. So that piece was for Harper's cell phone piece was for Harper's, and then you wrote one in the fall uh, about this guy who is like a like a cult extradition artist. I really love that story. That's like a uh, I you are you're sort of obsessed with obsessives. I'm pretty obsessed with cults. Mm-hmm. I just like don't understand how that psychology works really. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find that guy? And and, and uh, I don't know, where does that fit in the sort of like, you know, Nat Rich canon? Well, that's a piece that um, has a really sad uh, postscript, which is that this guy, David Sullivan, who's a private investigator in San Francisco, was a specialist in yeah, extricating people from cults. And he's somebody I, I got, was pretty close with. And I I, uh, I met him in 2004 or five. He came to, to the book party of my first book uh, about film noir, San Francisco noir, before the novels, um, in San Francisco. I got to know him, and I always knew that he was doing all these crazy, he would tell these crazy stories, but it was hard to tell if he was just full of shit or elaborating. Or um, And and finally, uh, at, at one point, he got very sick. He had cancer. He actually had stage four cancer twice, and he decided, like, he wanted to tell these stories. Wow. Um, about cults uh, specifically before he died and he and I talked to him at that point he gave a speech at the Commonwealth Club in uh, California, San Francisco it's online you can find it where he it's like an hour long talk about what he does and some of the crazier stories um, and I asked him at that point can I write a piece about you I mean he's a guy I kind of knew you know he's friends with a lot of writers and and he said, sure. Like, he was finally willing. It was a big deal for him because he's basically lived his entire life in secrecy. Right. Kind of had to, right? Had to. These cults, some of them are really violent and go after him. And he had involvement with all of them. I mean, Scientology, Moonies, some of that stuff's not in the piece because that was even, would be pushing it, I think, for his, he felt it would make him, um, put him in real danger. But so it was a big deal for him to tell this whole story. And I, I felt a, a big responsibility to write that piece. And... I spoke to him right before the week before the piece came out, and he hadn't read it. Um, he was feeling very anxious about it, um, understand as anyone would, being the subject of a, of a major profile. And I tried to sort of reassure him, and it came out. He said he got it in the mail one night, 
the next morning, it was Friday morning, I talked to him. He said he liked the piece. Um, he was really glad I did it. He was anxious about a couple things. He thought certain identities might be able, people would recognize people and that they could they could be upset. But I tried to reassure him that, that he was sort of over-concerned about that. And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, I'm sure when I'm less stressed out, I'll, I, I will appreciate it, you know. But I'm, I'm now kind of panicking, but I'm, you know. A few hours later, he died, dropped dead. And I found out the next morning. Um, and so it was traumatic yeah and upsetting and um he wasn't sick he you know he'd beat cancer he wasn't sick at the time or he was but he had it, it was not i don't think it was clear to him that he was going to die immediately he always had health issues um but he hadn't told anybody that it was bad i don't think he, he realized how bad it was i think his heart gave out basically um, it wasn't it was cancer related and that his body had gone through so much chemo and stuff that his he was weak but it was su- as sudden as it could be for someone who's a, a two-time cancer survivor. So it was. Um, I felt really glad that I was able to do the piece, and I felt glad that he was able to see it. Yeah. Um, I would have liked him, you know, selfishly, if he lived a day longer, he would have gotten all these messages and letters from his friends who had read it and were really excited about it and, and happy for him and, and loved the piece and so on. and. Um, and had been spending you know decades trying to convince him to t- tell everybody these stories, and so he missed that. Um, but it was uh, it was a trying experience. It was upsetting. I felt, you know, I felt conflicted, and I don't know that I have any regret about it, anything. But it's just was it just sat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't get to get those notes, but he did get to tell the stories. Yeah, he told the story, and and you know, he also had sold a, he had sold a. Uh, but he had a book deal to write a memoir. Really? Um, and he was starting to, he was going to start working on it like the next week. Wow. I've never had the experience of speaking with somebody or even emailing with somebody um, who's not about, you know, not in a hospital bed or anything, right? Where, where they're totally alive one second and then dead the next. Like that was just a jarring human experience for me to have. I was felt pretty haunted for the months after that. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad it, the piece came out when it did and that he saw it. Um, but he's he's just a fascinating figure. I'm sad that his book won't exist, at least not in that form. Did you go to the funeral? Mm-hmm. I went to the uh, memorial service in San Francisco, and all these crazy people from different parts of his life were there. And I'm actually going to... He spent a lot of time in uh, Parachi in Brazil. He had a house there, and he's part of this whole crazy Brazilian. He was like the mayor of his little island there, and he had this whole he had a Rio office, like a whole other side of him. Spent spent you know a few months there a year, and I'm actually going to that his island really um, in, in, this summer and pay my respects. And uh, some of his ashes were scattered in a waterfall there, and I'll meet hopefully meet some of these this Brazilian community. Um, but this, I mean, that piece was 7,000 words. Like, you know, it could easily, I could easily have written 10 times as much just about his work with cults. And that was only one slice of his whole career and his life. Um, incredibly rich, unusual person. And uh, did you get to know some of that richness after he died? I mean, like a little bit. I mean, yeah, hearing people talk at the memorial, everyone has 
every, you know, he's one of these guys that everyone who's friends with him like loves him deeply, and he's unlike anybody else they've ever met. And and he was a real adventurer and quester, and so they had all these crazy stories of different. You know, that time we were in the jungle in the Amazon and we did these drugs with the natives, you know, like this time we went hiking through the Grand Canyon and got lost for four days and almost died. Or the time he like, you know, got into Scientology, got into the inner chambers of Scientology and, you know, endless, endless stuff. And my biggest disappointment about the piece was I could only, I was limited in writing about one part of one small you know, part of his life. Yeah. It's amazing when, when uh, someone does si- die suddenly like that and uh, you haven't had a chance to think about them. I mean, you I did have a chance to think about them quite a bit, but, um, and you, and you start hearing those stories and it's all, it's all like genuine. It's all true. You know, like I, I feel like I've, I've, I've uh, um, sometimes people sort of like romanticize in that moment. It's just always so amazing when, uh, when it's all just it's completely true, you know, so I'll just go straight from the and heart. he was such a great storyteller, and he was really, like, a fabulist, except the stuff was... Well, I mean... Turned that, out to be true. That piece reads like fiction. Through the process, I was I was wary. I mean, I, 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 told, I kept telling him, you know, fact-checkers are going <laughs> to... Right. That piece it, it was interesting. I mean, I, it, was all, it was originally going to be a very different piece where I was going to infiltrate a cult, actually, um, with him. And we went down that path. Um, Too dangerous. It would have been pretty dangerous. I I, I felt comfortable because I was with him, and he's he's like the guy you want next to him in battle. Um, you want ne- next to you in battle. Um, but it it didn't uh, it didn't work. The the cult uh, would fail to infiltrate it. Basically, you got found out. We were trying to get a uh, fingerprints off of this guy, this cult leader who's in the piece, this sort of sicko who's seducing these young women in Santa Barbara through, like, dream therapy. (laughs) And we went to this cult recruitment meeting that he had in L.A. Um, And it was just this really sad, just fucked up, pathetic scene. Um, People lost people looking for something. It was under the guise of, like, an entrepreneurial convention. Yeah, they, green businesses. The connection between like uh, spiritual quest and small business, like entrepreneurship, yeah. is self betterment. You know, it's fucking terrifying. It's the kind of thing, like you know, you need to spend money to make money, and there's yeah. obviously some shady shit. This is how they were financing it, but they're also looking for new girls. Right. And uh, the cult leader had no, I had uh, frustrated Sully so much because he couldn't figure out who he really was, his real name and identity, and he'd never failed to find someone's real name before uh there were no 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 records anywhere all his inside sources produced nothing and he was convinced that this guy had been in the witness protection program wow. and they had erased his identity and now he was getting away with this shit because he had probably ratted someone out and he was and he, and was, he was sort of like untouchable untouchable and his methods were very sophisticated as, as sort of dumb as he was or as sleazy and very sophisticated he never drove a car because if you're pulled over you have to show it you know Lots of little things that that Sully picked that could pick out, and so we were trying to get his fingerprints. So we went to this convention, and I brought along this friend of mine, who's this, a girl who's a, a UCLA grad student, who's very pretty, and she went as my assistant, and I was posing as a journalist writing about green business, right, uh, under my name, and we endured this like hours of this tedious nonsense, and. We and the guy stays back. He has his sort of minions doing the networking, but we basically got a plate 
a couple things that he'd touched at the buffet that we thought had his fingerprints. And we snuck them out under our shirts and left. And Sully wasn't even in there. He was on the street because he'd already blown his cover in this job um, in a failed attempt earlier to, to extricate this girl who we met. We met the girl who'd been in the cult for, for years. Um, he's working for her, her parents. And we got the stuff. We went out to Orange County to a for- ex-cop's house where he, who does uh, forensic, freelance like forensic work in his retirement. And we gave him the plate and we gave him the, the you know fork or whatever. And he got a fingerprint. He got a good fingerprint. And the next step was to get someone in law enforcement to run the fingerprint through the various databases. And it's in California, it's very hard. Yeah, now. the law, it's illegal to do it unless the person's under investigation. So he was trying to get someone to basically do it illegally and he couldn't. And that was essentially the last, that was the end of it. Wow. How'd you not write about that part? Because <laughs> it's sort of a dead end and it was a, it's a fail, it's a failure. Yeah. It's not a, um, a triumph, and he had so many triumphs, and I wanted to to uh, have the piece be a triumphant, and and you know. yeah, I mean it, it's it is. I mean it, it reads uh, it's celebratory. Yeah, and so I hope I hope he he got that, but it's um, the timing was weird. The timing yeah, of his death, yeah, sure. But it, I mean, again, it seems like uh, at least he got to tell the stories. Yeah, no, he he knew that they were out there, and I think he was psyched about that, um, and. I think he understood that you know that it it was going to lead to a lot of other things for him and 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 I think he felt some sense of closure but it is a little bit weird that the second you know to use a word like closure is a little weird because he basically read it and died um but that's I don't think I don't think there's a correl I don't think it was causal but <laughs> it's just you know it's it's, it's just Upsetting. I haven't really had any experience like that before. I mean, I mean, who? Why would I? I yeah. Mean, so, hey, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss Berman. Our intern this week, Sarah Button. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, EA Sports, FIFA World Cup, and Tiny Letter. And thanks very much to Nat Rich for uh, coming in and taking the time. Nat's story on David Sullivan, which ran in the November 2013 issue of Harper's, uh, has been unlocked. Harper's unlocked it for us. Uh, So go there, harpers.org. You can find the link in our show notes. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.